0: The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very present, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate. It is desolate. As overthrown by foreigners. And the daughters of Zion is left with like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and a fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moon and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of the deeds from your before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen.
1: Well, this morning we're going to be jumping into a series in the book of Isaiah. And if you have uh, been looking at the book of Isaiah over this week, that's great. Uh, If you'd like to take part in the commentary reading or the devotional, uh, we've got a devotion, you should pick that up and follow along as we're spending our time in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is an Old Testament book. And I'm always struck uh, when occasionally I'll have a visitor, uh, someone from another church uh, or someone from elsewhere who will come in and find out we're preaching from the Old Testament, and they'll say something like, why do we as New Testament Christians need to hear from the Old Testament? And to be honest with you, that is an excellent question. I mean, that's the kind of question that we as Christians ought to be able to answer. We ought to be ready to answer that. And so let me just let the New Testament answer for me. I've got a few reasons. I've got more, but three that I'll give you this morning. Uh, one is, uh, you'll notice whenever you read Second Timothy, in chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, Paul is speaking to a young pastor. And when he does, he tells him, I want you to know this, Timothy, all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. And he goes on to say that it is profitable to equip every Christian for every good work. In other words, all of Scripture... And that would include at least the Old Testament, as he's speaking, is necessary for you, Christian pastor, to teach your Christian congregation so that they can please God. They, they need Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. But not only that, it's the model that Jesus set forth from us. Uh, you'll remember that Jesus, in Luke 24, 26, and 27, uh, finds himself, after his resurrection, on a road with these two men who do not know him. And while they're on that road, we're told that Jesus opened up the word of God to them, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, and began to show them how all of the scriptures spoke of him. Now, he says all of prophets, right? Uh, Moses and all the prophets. Well, here's why I think he probably was talking about Isaiah a lot on the road to Amazus. Because if you look at the New Testament, you'll find that he is the third most quoted Old Testament writer behind Psalms, And Deuteronomy. In other words, he is the most quoted Old Testament prophet. So my guess is on that day on the road to Emmaus, he was laying out for them verse after verse from Isaiah and saying this is how we see Christ the Messiah. Here he is. But it's not just that. It's not just that it's a model of Paul and Jesus. Uh, You'll also recall in the New Testament that great example in Acts 8 where you have this Ethiopian eunuch who's out in the wilderness as he's just been rejected from the temple in Jerusalem. And we find him meeting Philip. And as Philip meets him on the road, what book is it that he uses to lead him to the Lord? It's Isaiah. So, brothers and sisters, uh, the reason that we preach the Old Testament is because it's what Paul did. It's what Jesus did. It is what Philip did to lead people to Christ. And that's what we do. Now, I I find Isaiah extremely exciting as a book in the Old Testament. And here's why. When you look at the book of Isaiah, what you'll find is, is that this book is really all about the Messiah, Now here's what I mean, if you look at the very breakdown of the sections of the book of Isaiah, what you'll find is, is that it really is broken up into three different descriptions of the same person, a Messiah who they looked forward to in Israel to come and save them. Now you'll find as you read through that chapters 1 through 39 tell you that this Messiah is going to be a king, a great king. Uh, But then whenever you get to chapters 40 to 55, things get a little bit confusing, Because this same great king is also described as a suffering servant who will suffer for his people. And yet it's the same person. Uh, But then when you get to 56 to 66, the story picks up. Because there you find that this is an anointed conqueror, this Messiah, who is going to come and restore all things and set things right. So as we are looking through this book of Isaiah, what we find is, is Isaiah is constantly pointing a people who are looking at a world that is falling down all around them, and he is saying, listen to me, there is a great Messiah that is coming. God has not given up on us. It might look like it, but he is coming, and he is going to set all things right. And here's what I love as a Christian as I read this book. I know that the, Isaiah that, the, the Messiah that Isaiah looked for is the Messiah that I'm looking at. I'm looking at Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, you might not know this, but when you read the New Testament, you see Jesus Christ a lot. And as you probably heard, Christ is not his last name. Uh, Christ is actually from the Greek Christos. It is a title in the Greek that means Messiah. And so when you see Jesus Christ, the New Testament is again and again testifying that this man, Jesus, that we killed and saw raised from the dead is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that Isaiah and others longed for, and we have seen him. Follow this one. So as we're looking through the book of Isaiah, I'm excited that we're going to be actually looking at Christ again and again. Now just so you know, I'm not the first person that has seen that. I'm not the only person who sees this. In fact, it was in the 4th century uh, AD that Jerome noticed this. And I love what he said. He said, Isaiah should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet. Because he describes all the mysteries of Christ. And the church... So clearly that one would think that he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying what is to come. And friends, that's what we're going to be looking at over this next semester as we are gazing in Isaiah. We're going to be looking to Christ. And let me just ask you this morning. Are you ready for and do you desire for this book, Isaiah, to change your life? Well, brothers and sisters, there's good news. I think God promises us that it will. So let's go to the Lord right now and pray, and pray that God would change our lives through His Word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, you have just heard, and in some ways, loudly, the reality that we want to have your Word wash over us and change us. And Father, I know there are, here, there are those here this morning who are doubting that a book as old as Isaiah could change them, or speak into their lives, but God, we know that your Spirit works through your Word and that you are willing and able to change us this morning. And I pray this morning that you would soften our hearts to be changed and transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the long-awaited Messiah. Father, we need to have lives and hearts that are broken and healed by your Son, Christ. And we ask that you would do that this morning to the glory of your name. And it's the great name of that Son that we do pray. Amen. Well, we're going to find uh, a number of things in our text this morning. But if we want to really get into the book of Isaiah, we've got to do a little bit of legwork to kind of ramp up into this book so that we understand the context that this prophet is preaching into. Uh, context matters. Uh, context helps us understand why this book is important. And so this morning we're going to look at the context and uh, really, our first verse helps set the stage for the context that we're going to be looking at. So you can go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read there. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, here's the first thing that, that we find here. I, I believe this verse actually sets the context, not just for chapter one or section one, but the whole book. It helps us understand where they're at, these people of Judah, as Isaiah is speaking to them. And Isaiah, whose name means the Lord saves, what a great name for this prophet and his message, he received a vision. Now, I know when you're thinking about visions, you might think to yourself, it must have been visual and maybe it was, but we don't know how he received this vision. Um, We know it's different than dreams because there's a different word for that. But in some way, God has revealed a message to Isaiah that later, maybe years later, he wrote down to hand down to us. Now, here what we find is, is that he is speaking to Judah. Judah is one of those 12 tribes of Israel. Of course, Judah is a special tribe. You, you'll remember in Genesis that Jacob prophesied about this tribe, Judah, and he prophesied saying, "Judah, from you a king, an everlasting king, is going to come." It says that in Genesis forty nine ten, and then later in 2 Samuel seven, God makes a he makes a covenant with a king who comes from Judah, King David. And he says, King David, I want you to know that I'm making a covenant that is new. It's better than the old covenant that I had with guys like Saul, in the sense that I will never leave or forsake you. And I want you to know that you're going to have a son, and from that son I am going to produce an everlasting kingdom and reign, and it will never depart from him. And you need to know that all of those promises that I made to Abraham And all those promises that I told Israel that they would experience from Abraham are now going to be experienced through this king, King David, his son, and his eternal throne. And God promises that his steadfast covenant of love would never depart from him. Now this marked, I believe, a major transition in how God dealt with his people. He would deal with them as he dealt with their king, King David. Now what's interesting here is the capital of Judah was Jerusalem, that second place that's mentioned. And the city of Jerusalem was also known as the city of David or Mount Zion. This is where the identity of Israel centered on the temple of God where he dwelt. He lived with his beloved people. Now, here's the deal. If you follow the story of Israel, what you'll find is, is that it did not take long after King David for things to really get in trouble. So, right after King David, he had King Solomon as his son. And once Solomon was gone, the kingdom split. It split between the north and the south. So um, Rehoboam took the southern uh, country and he took Judah with him. And of course, you know, well, that's important because that's where the house of God is. Now, now that that kingdom actually produced a lot of good kings. In fact, in the list that we just read, uh, you'll find that the kings that are mentioned there, beginning with Uzziah, Uzziah was a good king, and so was um, Jotham, and, and then Hezekiah, all good kings. Now, Ahaz was super wicked. He was a bad dude. But the rest of them were good. Now, as far as the northern tribes, you can imagine how when Jeroboam took them, he had a major problem. His problem is, how do I help my people worship if we can't get to the temple anymore? Well, he was um, pretty innovative, and he said, you know what, I've got an idea. I'm going to go multi-site with my shrines. I'm going to have one in Dan and Bethel. It'll be more convenient for people, and uh, they'll love it. And so he even created a golden calf for the one in the north and the south, and so people now had an image of their God like other nations, and, and people, they kind of liked it. And so what you find in Israel from there on is that most of the kings were wicked and led people more and more away from the ways of God. By the time that we find Isaiah show, show up on the scene, we know that Isaiah was probably from the royal line, part of the royal family, not a king, but a family member. He has two kids, a wife. He was a, a pretty good guy from what we can tell, uh, loved the Lord. Uh, and tradition taught, a tradition that we find in men like Chrysostom taught, that he was probably the one that Hebrews 10.27 speaks about when it talks about somebody who was sown in two by King Manasseh, a really bad king. See, Isaiah prophesied for 50 years from 740 to 690 B.C. And he saw northern Israel fall to Assyria. And he predicted that Babylon would later take over and conquer Judah. But God promised through Isaiah that he would send a Messiah to save his people. Now just please hear me. When we hear Isaiah and the words that he uses to describe how bad things are, he's not chicken little that's running around like sort of like overemphasizing how bad things are. The, The kingdom is falling. People are dying. People are being murdered. They're being wiped off the face of the planet. And in the midst of this, Isaiah does look a little bit crazy as he is saying, I have a word of hope for you. I have a word that there's a Messiah that is coming. God has not given up on us. It might look like it, but God is going to come to us. Friends, maybe as we begin this morning, you need to hear that again and again. Maybe you're looking at the darkness of your life today. Maybe uh, your world is broken. It is crashing in on you. And that could be a number of things. It could be uh, you feel like your marriage is struggling and and you feel like it is over. Uh, Maybe your wife has left you. Maybe your husband has left you. Maybe your kids Your kids are living in a way that is self-destructive and you feel partly to blame and guilty and also sad and broken over it. I I don't know what it is today that's going on in your life, but maybe you're feeling like, man, I I feel like God's done with me. Well, please hear me this morning. This message is for a people who feel like God is done with them. God is not done ever with his people. And there is a great word of hope to be heard through Isaiah. And I'm grateful for that. Here's what we're going to see this morning in this chapter, chapter one. It is this, that only God can restore justice and save sinners from the devastating effects of sin. Only God, if you're taking notes, great thing to write down. Only God can restore justice and save sinners from the devastating effects of sin. And we're going to see that in a number of ways. But uh, let's begin in in verses 2 to 8 where we'll see that sin rebellion ruins everything. Sin rebellion ruins everything. That's our, our second overall point. See, Isaiah begins his prophecy with this epic portrayal of an impromptu court that has been convened where he has actually called heaven and earth to come and testify against Judah for what God has seen. God plays the role of the judge and the prosecutor. By the way, you'll notice that creation here, as always, stands on the side of the Creator. See, creation will always ultimately declare the glory of God. Maybe uh, you're a science student, or you teach science, or you're a scientist. Maybe, I don't know, you're like a rocket scientist. But whatever it is. What you should expect is that when you are studying, when you are looking at science, you should never be scared to know more about how the world works. You might not understand it fully, but you can always expect that this world will ultimately, if not until the last day, testify that what God's Word says is true. We're not scared of knowing more about this physical world any more than we're scared of knowing more about God's Word. But notice here, right out of the gate, Isaiah says that this might be a word to Judah, and by extension to Israel. But it carries universal significance that extends even to you and to me. And we learn a number of things here about sin in the verses that follow. Uh, Notice what God says beginning in verse 2. Here's what He says. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they... Have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Now, the first thing that we learn really quickly in these verses about sin is that sin alienates us from God, and we're going to see that throughout. But sin, it alienates you from God. Now, hundreds of of years earlier, God had chosen to redeem Israel out of slavery to Egypt, and He placed His name on them as a people. In fact, Exodus 4, 22 to 23, speaks of this, where the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will take your firstborn son. Now, at first, that might sound cruel. Like, I'm going to take your firstborn son because you have taken my firstborn son. But don't miss the implication here. God says, I am so for Israel that nothing will stand in the way of me taking him. My love for him is greater than your love, Pharaoh, for your firstborn son. He will be relentless in his love and his pursuit of his son. And God took a people who were not merely made a little less than the angels. They were the least of people and not a people. That's what the Bible says. And he made and treated them as his firstborn son. He Fought for them. See, God rescued Israel, who Egypt had burdened with inexhaustible slave labor. And you'll remember that the Pharaoh had even murdered their babies and he had actually taken their children. And yet here what we find is, is that God in His infinite kindness took them and fed them with food from heaven. He he gave them the promised land that was full of milk and honey. and, And He dwelt with them in His temple. He lived with them as they were his own children. what What a good dad. Now, maybe this morning you don't have a dad or you don't have a good dad. But let me just tell you this morning that if you even have the best dad, he is but a faint echo of the goodness of your heavenly father. Like even our best dads pale in comparison to the goodness and love and mercy. And generosity of our Heavenly Father. He is the best possible Dad. Think about it. Every single good thing that you have, and maybe you've spent too much time thinking about the things you don't have or the bad things, but every good thing that you have actually comes from God. It is a good gift. There is no good that has come to you that has not come in some way from His hand. See, God's the best good that you have. It's not just... The one who gives you all good. He is your best good. Now you would expect, I think, that kids that had a dad like that would be grateful. That they would celebrate their good dad. And they would happily obey his voice knowing that he's infinitely wise and good. And that nothing is hidden from him. And he's got the best you know, jump shot in the land. He's a good dad. But God's children, they we find, rebelled against him. See, this this word for rebellion that is used to describe the reaction of these people to God is actually speaking of sin against God. They are disobeying His clear word or voice. And here I think we learn another couple of things about sin, and don't miss this. Another is that sin is always personal. Sin is always personal. It is rebellion against God. That's how God describes it. Now, I want you just to think about this really quickly this morning. There are tons of applications here. But, but let me just talk to the men. Men, the way that you treat your wives, whether you are short with them in your voices, whether you are violent with them in your outburst, or whether you're just neglectful and you don't care for them as you ought to, as Christ loved the church. Uh, you, you haven't merely just sinned against your wife. Your, your sin is against God. The same goes for wives. The same is true for singles. Singles, if, if you're not honoring the person that you're in a relationship with or the way you're thinking about the person you wish you were in a relationship with, like ultimately, yeah, that, that sin against them. But the greater deal that you've got going is not what's between you and that other person. That's important, but it's the implications of what that means about you and your relationship with God. You're rebelling against Him because your God, catch this, He cares how you treat others. He cares how you love others. And he says the way that you love others says something about how you love me. So as we think about sin, we need to recognize that it is always something personal. I think sometimes we try to think about it as sort of a a commodity that we can either take or leave, and it only affects us, and that we have all the control over it. But the reality is, is that sin is always personal, and it is against God, even if we're not aiming it that way. I think we see something else here. And this is a deep theological truth that we've seen highlighted elsewhere in the Bible. Are you ready for this? Third truth about sin. You ready? Okay, you got to come in close. Sin makes you stupid. Did I, was that slow enough? Sin makes you stupid. It's true. How do I know that? Personal experience. See, when Isaiah says, you know, don't say you haven't personal experience in that area, but notice when Isaiah says, That even an ox knows its master, and a donkey its master's crib. But Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. He's saying, Israel isn't dumb as an ox. They're dumber. And it's not that they're as stubborn as a donkey. They're more stubborn than a donkey. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it, that old Baptist pastor. He said this, We, we as sinners, are more brutish than brutes when we forget our God. Right? When, we, when God is out of focus and our own selfish desires are, are in full view, uh, we become the brutish of brutes in the way that we live our lives. I understand the power of a master's voice myself, especially when dealing with brutes because I have a dog. I have a collie, a collie named Shep, um, and uh, lately we've been calling him Survivor because we started the summer with seven pets and now we have one. But uh, Shep, is a, he's a good dog. We love Shep. If you like, if you like dogs, he's a dog you're going to love. But catch this. The reason I know the power of a, a master's voice in the life of a dog is because I see the way my dog responds to my wife. Now, let me explain. Uh, when my wife says for Shep to do anything, he hangs on her every word. He literally follows her around the house just looking at her like, what's next? What would we like to do? How can I please you? Can we go for a run? I would love to spend more time with you. He, he does that constantly, and if she says sit, he sits, and if he says stops, he stops. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. I come in, and I say, Shep, come here, and he literally runs the other direction. I go, and I sit down, and I'm like, Shep, leave me alone, and he is a 60-pound dog. He jumps in my lap, right? Like, he completely doesn't listen to my voice. You may be wondering, why doesn't he listen to your voice? Well, there's a reason. See, he listens to Kerry's voice because he understands who it is that spends time each day feeding him, giving him water, making sure that uh, he is combed. She'll brush out the knots in his fur that hurt him. Uh, she'll pet him. She'll speak to him. She speaks kindly to him. Uh, that dog knows that if there is any good that comes to him, it is coming through Kerry. And if his life is dependent on me, he's as good as dead. But the reality is, that so many of us, as funny as that seems for Shep, are so much slower than Shep in the sense that we don't recognize where every good comes from. I mean, really when we sin, it's because we don't trust that God is as good as he says that he is, or we don't believe that he's as powerful as we says he is to be able to bring about what he has promised us. But if we really take God at His Word and trust that He is as good as He is and understand and believe and look to all the promises that He already has fulfilled for us and the inheritance that is awaits, why wouldn't we hang on every word of God as a dog would hang on his master? See, that's exactly what God is describing here. It's a picture of a people who have become numb to the goodness of God. And they've chosen masters that would treat them as good as dead. I love what happens after that. Notice verse 4 describes the result of their sins. And we need this. These are hard words, but it, it gives us a picture of what sin leads to when we turn from God to, find, to look to other things. He says in verse 4, Ah, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly Estranged. Now, did you catch that? It's not just that their sin has left them looking completely different than their heavenly Father, the Holy One of Israel. It's not just that. That's true, but they have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised Him and utterly estranged themselves. See, they were children who orphaned themselves and made themselves aliens. Now, how did they do that? Well, I like what Alec Moitier says or moitié, as Malachi says, the French say it. He says this, Forsaking is deliberately distancing ourselves from Him. And it arises from a change of heart, whereby He who should be loved is rather spurned and treated with scorn. Do you see what this change of heart has done? They abandon their source of every. Good. They sought sin rather than the Holy One of Israel, and it led to sorrow and a loss of identity. It specifically looks like they turned here to idolatry. That's their sin. And it has reshaped and formed them so that they don't look like their good God anymore. But just look at another result of sin in verses five to eight, one last one. Look what it says. God God asks them, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country, it lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate. Is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth and a vineyard, like a lodge and a cucumber field, like a besieged city. See, all of of Judah's sin, it led to nothing but sorrow. And the more that they rebelled, the more that they suffered. And and the more that they suffered, uh, what they find is, is that they suffered to the point that, did you notice Bruises and raw wounds from the sole of the foot to the top of their heads resulted. And the daughter of Zion, probably the inhabitants of the holy city of Jerusalem, they looked like Lot fleeing Sodom. It looked like this city was ready to fall. It was hopeless. And the reality is for us today still that sin always leads to sorrow and usually a lot more than we could have imagined I've said this before, you know, when Satan comes and he tempts you, he always shows you all of the benefits, which are usually a lie of sin, and he always hides all of the consequences. He never tells you that. But usually what you get is all of the consequence, and if you get the joy, it's fleeting. And so here what we find is they are left with all of the sorrowful consequences of their sins. You know, holiness, brothers and sisters, I hope you believe this. Holiness is the only way to true happiness and joy. Like, I know that you might have bought into the lie. It's easy for any of us to buy into the lie that that maybe if we sin, we can be happier than holiness would make us. But the reality is, God wants us to be holy because that is the only way to eternal and lasting joy. He wants what's good for us. He wants it more than we want it for ourselves. But after you suffer because of your sin, I think you need to realize this morning, ask yourself this morning, this question. Are you suffering Because of your sin this morning. Now let me be clear. I want to be really clear. Come in close. Don't miss this. Not all suffering is due to your sin. We see that clearly in the the New Testament, in the Bible. We don't have time to go there. But you need to know that not all suffering is due to your sin. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a broken world. Sometimes we we, we suffer as a consequence of other sins. But... Sometimes we do bring suffering upon ourselves because of our sins. And so this morning, could it be that maybe you have brought suffering upon yourself because of your sin? Could it be that you need to stop and take an inventory of your life and ask some important questions? May you become numb to your patterns of sin. So let me just ask you some questions. You can come up with your own later. But first, do you have bitterness and anger or anger in your heart that is destroying relationships? Maybe you have broken relationships and it's their fault, but you haven't stopped to think about what kind of bitterness you've been harboring in your own heart that makes it hard to have healthy relationships. Bitterness is a sin, that anger. Or does your worship of comfort prevent you from serving your local church sacrificially, right? So maybe you're like, man, I would love to go to church, but I'm only on like season five of The Office. And I just really have to get that done. And hopefully nothing else will come out between now and then that would prevent me yet again from being able to serve the local church. You know, there are good reasons that you can be busy, but is it that you worship comfort and that's keeping you from doing what God calls you to? Does your love of reputation present, prevent you from sharing Christ with the lost? Or, or does your lack of self-control result in foolish purposes and debts that have enslaved you? See, Hebrews ten six tells us this. Catch this. God disciplines the child that he loves because he loves us and wants better for us than that. So maybe this morning, some of the suffering that you have because of that sin is God's way through his spirit of trying to change and transform you not just so he can make you look like him. Yes, that that's not a bad deal. But also because he believes that your joy is at stake. Don't sacrifice or in any way um, give over to a lesser joy rather than having the joy that God wants you. See, holiness is the only way to meaningful happiness and joy. That's what the Holy One of Israel says. Now, Judah was spiritually beaten up. Judah may have turned from God, but God didn't turn from Judah. And notice what Isaiah says in verse 9. This is a glorious picture of our God. Here we see third, that only God's mercy saves rebels. Verse 9, look with me. He says, If the Lord of hosts... Had not left us a few survivors. We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you might remember them from Genesis 19. They became famous for flames, right? They were destroyed by the judgment of God. Uh, they were killed, they were told they were judged because of, um, uh, because of their sexual sins, uh, because of their poor hospitality, uh, because of their Uh, wickedness. They were known as being extremely sinful and rebellious against God. They were famous for that in all of the Bible. But what differentiates Sodom and Gomorrah from Judah here is they have experienced this devastation that has come upon them because of their sin, probably through Assyria or some foreign power. Does God say that what makes you different, Judah, is really all about you. I mean, I saved you. Does God say, I saved you, Judah? Because you weren't as sinful as Sodom. I mean, it was close, but you weren't quite that sinful. Or since you have better genetics. I mean, you were a pretty people. I like to look at you and I made you. I was proud. I didn't want to lose you. Or because Judah turned things around at the last moment. like That's the reason God had mercy. Well, no, that, that's not at all what Isaiah points to. Isaiah points to the Lord of hosts, which depicts in that title unparalleled sovereign power for leaving us a few survivors. It's because God is sovereign and powerful. And not only that, it's the sovereign, powerful God that left a few. That's God in mercy. So that the sovereign God is also the one who is a merciful God. So God is both judge and Savior over Judah. Judah. Sovereign in both His power and mercy. God saved them because of who God is, not because of who they are. It's because of a commitment that He made that He kept, not because they kept their commitments. I mean, what a glorious God. They were rebels. God is merciful. And if not for God, God would have justly annihilated Judah for their rebellion. I love what commentator Gary Smith says here about this picture. He says, the distinction between Sodom and Sodom and Jerusalem is not in the behavior of the people, but in the marvelous grace of God and miraculously delivering them from the Assyrian army. See, it is completely an act of God's grace that saved them. Now as Christians, we know that God has adopted us as children of God through faith in Christ. And, and we should be encouraged by a couple of realities here. I, I don't want to let these pass by. Maybe things that you're thinking about in your heart right now. The first is this. Maybe this morning God has blessed you. And I say blessed intentionally with a sense of your sinfulness before him today. But you feel like you are so bruised and beaten up by the consequences of your sins that God wouldn't want you to be able to use you. Maybe that's you. You feel the open spiritual wounds that you have perhaps brought upon yourself. Well, don't miss this. You need to know that God only saves sinners and rebels. Those who have rebelled against Him. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And none of us are good enough left to ourselves to merit His grace. See, Jesus is the only hand who can bring up and and heal our wounds. In fact, later in Isaiah 53, we're told that all of us equally need Christ when He says uh, that there is a Messiah who is coming in Isaiah 53. And this king is also going to be a suffering servant, and by his wounds, we are healed. You might say, well, okay, well, Isaiah had that to look forward to, Judah had that to look forward to, but what about me? Well, catch this, Peter picks this up in the New Testament, this promise made to them, and he applies it to a church of Gentiles and Jews, a mixed church, and here's what he says in 1 Peter 2.24, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And catch what he says, by his wounds being Jesus's, you have been healed. You know, part of coming to Christ this morning, if that's you who's struggling to come to him, is trusting that Christ's blood and his resurrection is sufficient to heal the wounds that you have. God promises that they are, that his blood can heal you. Of course, Jesus, what we know is, that he didn't merely heal a pummeled people, right? He didn't just heal people who were beat up real bad. No, the, the New Testament message is more startling and striking than that, right? He didn't just heal pummeled people. We're told that he raised dead people. That's the message of Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then in verses 4 to 5, he goes on to say that we were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, Right? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let me just tell you this morning, if you feel like you have nothing to bring, you're in the perfect place to come to Christ. Come running. Don't leave this morning without talking to me or another member about how you can come to know this Christ who can heal your wounds and also raise you spiritually from the dead. I believe the gospel will do that for you in the same way that he has done it for me. But if you are not a Christian, please don't hesitate to run to Christ. But there's another lesson I think that we learn here in this text from, from what Christ has done. Uh, we learn that the mercy of God will preserve his people because he is good. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. The mercy of God will preserve you, not because you are great, but because God is good. God is able. Notice that God restrains sin's power against His people. See, God, He He will preserve His people. I love what Alec Moitier says uh, again in this text. He says, there is a point at which the Lord sets His people. He sets them and He says, no to the consequences of sin and the power of the foe. He will use it to teach it, but he will not use it to destroy us. Because God loves his children. He is a good dad. Now, This morning, maybe you are fearful of the effects of your sin on your soul. Maybe you're asking, how, do I, how can I know that God will hold me fast? Well, just know that God has promised this. At John 10, we find that Jesus, as he brings in a new and better covenant to those who put their faith in him, we're told that Jesus will ne- never let go of those who come to him. And He keeps a white-knuckled grip on us in God. Listen to what it says in John 10, 27-30. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. And they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no, no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see it? Jesus has this white knuckle grip on us. And he says, if that's not enough for you, like, God the Father has a white knuckle grip on me, and we're one, and like, nobody's getting you away from us. What a picture of the security that we have in him. Friends, let me tell you, if you are in Christ, God will hold you fast. But notice verses 10 to 17 tell us that horizontal injustice both reflects our relationship with God and affects our worship of God. You might not have thought about this. Maybe. This morning, uh, you came and you were thinking to yourself, really, my relationship with God is really all about me and God, and, and I, by myself, can kind of tell you how I'm doing spiritually, and I don't really need other people, and really, people, they don't need, really need me, and they don't really have anything to do with what's going on here, and it's pretty special, I think. Well, according to God, God says, actually, your relationships with others say much about your relationship with the Father. And so, who you worship will shape your identity. Uh, Notice in verses 10 to 17 that God's people look more like Sodom than their God. God's people look more like Sodom than their God in verses 10 to 17. I think it's important just to know, who you worship will shape your identity. Uh, Or as theologian Greg Bill would say, you are what you worship. What you worship shapes you, your identity, who you are, the decisions you make, your life trajectory. In fact, nothing shapes your character and the trajectory of your life like the God that you worship. Both matter. Judah slipped into idolatry and they kept offering sacrifices in the temple. They even offered nice fat animals to God, doing what he told them to do. But catch what God's response was to all of their religious observances. He says this beginning in verse 10. These are words that none of us ever want to hear, by the way, but here's what He says: "Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? And make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Do you see it? Do you hear the voice of God here? He tells them to cease to do evil. To learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's case. He's here saying, um, you have not acted in a way that reflects my character. But catch what happens here in the context of worship and the way that his people approach him as a response. Did you notice that Judah transitions from the people being almost like Sodom in verse 9, to the leaders being just like Sodom in verse 10? I'm not sure what's happening. Maybe the people are catching up to the wickedness of the kings. But there's something that's going on spiritually. And when these people come to worship God with their sacrifices, God says, I've had enough. I take no delight in your sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination, and your new moons, and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. So much so that, catch this, God says that when you come to pray before me, I close my eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but that to me sounds like a nightmare. I mean, to think that I am coming before the Lord to pray and ask help that only He can hear, and to have God say, you know what, like, I'm done. This office is closed. We talk about hopelessness going deep and dark in a way that's never been experienced before. That's what's happened here in worship. Now maybe you're thinking, what's that like for us? Um, I have not been uh, to a service recently at Trinity Bible Church where y'all slaughtered a bull and sacrificed it in the service. Kind of glad for that, right? We don't do that anymore. But what would that be like for us? Well, just imagine. Imagine God telling us, I hate your church services. Your Sunday school classes, your community groups. I hate them. I I, I hate uh, all these things. I can't stand your quiet times and your prayers. Your singing hurts my ears. And your conferences make me sick. All of these things are a wearisome burden to me. Can you imagine God saying that to you? Now why would God say these things to them? I mean, did not God Himself establish the sacrificial system for them? And now He's saying, I hate the thing that I told you to do. Well, of course God created it, but catch this. God's angry here with the abuse of the rituals, not the use of them. He's not angry because they've obeyed. He's angry with them because of their hearts. See, they worship God with their hands, but their hearts are far from Him. And we know that sin does a couple of things to you, right? I mean, sin, we're told in the Bible, it makes you guilty before God who is just. It also makes you filthy and unclean before Him. And both of those things have to be dealt with for us to become before God. Well, here what we find is is that their hands are filthy with the blood of others. But notice here, verses 16 to 17 speak of them washing themselves of evil deeds. And in verse 17, learning to do good, seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, and pleading the widow's claws. In other words, loving God ought to make us look holy like God is holy. See, those who love God will display the holy character, His holy character, in seeking to be a blessing to those in need. In fact, notice that verse 21-23 to tell us that they become crooks and swindlers, they offer bribes, And they're always looking out for what's in it for them and not for others. They're not looking to be a blessing to the weak. They're looking to rob the poor. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus, when speaking of the way that we ought to treat others, actually brings the local church into the foreground. And he says, you know what? The way that you're living out your life with other Christians in a covenant community tells you a lot about the way that you are loving God. The way that you're practicing and using your spiritual gifts. Uh, the way that you are uh, rubbing shoulders with and seeking to, to reconcile with those who you have problems with. All of those things are a reflection of what true religion looks like. It's about loving one another in the way that God has loved us. And Jesus does this. He brings the local church to the foreground of living faithful lives with one another in such a way to bring glory to God. Now, Matthew 5, we get a picture of Jesus. And he, is, um, he says something interesting. So you'll notice that these folks have committed injustice. They have blood on their hands. They look like murderers. Well, Jesus, in the New Testament, uh, speaks of a, a case like this, but he kind of ups the ante. So in Matthew 5, he says, well, you've heard that mur- murderers will be judged. But I say that anyone that's even angry with his brother will face judgment. And, who, and everyone who insults his brother will face judgment. So you see how that gets like, that's worse, not better. That's harder. And then in Matthew five twenty three, he says it this way, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and, and there remember that your brother or sister has aught with you or something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar first and go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Let me just ask you this morning, have you considered that maybe you have committed sins of omission, like not caring for people like you should? Or sins of commission like actively gossiping or or being bitter against someone in such a way that uh, you've not been preparing your soul, cleansing your soul in the ways that God has called you so that you can really meet with Him in, in really powerful ways. In ways that you are being led by the Spirit. Could it be that this morning there's some way that you need to cleanse yourself in the way that Judah was called to? And yet knowing that you have a better resource. You have the very Spirit of God on your heart leading you to be sanctified, transformed in His image. You know, as we're about to prepare for communion. This is a great opportunity for you let the Spirit do His work in seeking out and searching your heart as to whether or not you have relationships that need to be reconciled. You know, Jesus would say, hey, that's something that should be fixed and then come and meet with me and dine with me. But there's a final thing that we see here in verses 18 to 20. Only God can cleanse sinners. Here are some great verses to prepare us for communion. Just as bad and difficult as those former verses were to read, here's the hope that Isaiah brings, as he often does. He says in verse 18, he says this, "'Come now, let us reason together,' says the Lord. "'Though your sins are like scarlet, "'they shall be white as snow. "'Though they are red like crimson, "'they shall become like wool. "'If you are willing and obedient, "'you shall eat the good of the land. "'But if you refuse and rebel,' You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see it? There are two ways to live. There's one in which we are called to cleanse ourselves, there's another in which we say, you know what, we're given over to the beast. I say here that we have a beautiful call for us to come to God and seek cleansing. Of course, we know that we can't cleanse ourselves by ourselves, right? So, true cleansing requires a few things according to the New Testament. Three things I want to close with. The first is this. We know that if we really want to be cleansed, it requires God's provision for spiritual washing, which only comes through faith in Christ. We cannot be cleansed in the way that Isaiah dreams for us without the Messiah coming and laying down his life for us, without us putting our faith in him and being transformed into the image of Christ. We must be cleansed first by Christ. But there's a second way that we see the New Testament speak of cleansing as well. Uh, You'll notice that it also says that cleansing requires confession. So if you're looking to be clean this morning, confession is important. First John 19. There John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and what? Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You believe that? You confess your sins to Jesus, you know the promise? He will cleanse you. He, he will forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will make you clean. So confess. And then third, we see that cleansing requires us to change our lives. First Corinthians 7.1 says this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, God... It's cleansed us, and His Spirit is at work in us to make us live holy lives that reflect the Holy One of Israel. See, that's one indication of true faith. It's not that we don't sin altogether. That's not what is a display of true faith. We don't believe in perfectionism, right? Like, why why do I know that? Uh, Because this morning happened, okay? But here's what we do know is a, a display of the reality that we have come into communion with God. It's that we know in our lives we have actually taken God's side against sin rather than sin's side against God. In other words, the truth is to be seen, the spirituality in your life, it's the fight. It's the fight that we see between you and your sin that shows spiritual life. It's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog, right? It's knowing that that fight is actually spirit-driven from the Holy Spirit who is at work in you. So as we go this morning into a time of communion, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to, to pray and ask the Lord. In your heart of hearts, are, are you in good relationship with others? Are there relationships that you need to repent of? Now, maybe this morning uh, you're like, I've tried to repent of a relationship. I've tried to reconcile a relationship. I've done as much as I can. And that sometimes you have. You've done as much as humanly possible. But maybe you realize and recognize this morning that there's a relationship that needs to be reconciled that you haven't put any effort into. And maybe this communion table is calling you to be faithful in pursuing that relationship and seeking reconciliation. maybe this morning you have sin in your life, sin that's corroding your soul. And maybe this morning God in his mercy has brought it to light and has reminded you that you need to change your life. There's some aspect that needs to change and it doesn't need to wait. You need more of Jesus today. You don't want to delay. Let me encourage you to do that. Take this time as we're spending time in silence before communion and pray about those sins and ask God's forgiveness. Confess them and then change your life.